that term right there, minor prophet, and what minor prophet means. It doesn't mean that the minor prophets aren't important. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement of quantity, not quality. If you look at the book of Isaiah, it is fairly substantial. If you look at the book of Haggai, it is only two chapters. In the Hebrew Bible, you often will see this referred to as the book of the twelve or the book or, or the scroll of the twelve. And it's the twelve prophets that are the last twelve books of the Old Testament or what are found there in the book of the twelve. That's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And if I was still seven years old, I would have been able to do that from memory. But we're going to be in Haggai over the next couple of weeks, next three weeks, this week and the next two. And so as we begin to, to dig in to Haggai this week, I thought it would be important for us to sort of place ourselves so we know where we are in the story of God's people, where we are in the biblical narrative. Because one of the things that can frustrate me is the fact that Scripture is not necessarily in chronological order. It ends up being organized thematically. Now, the first few books, from Genesis through about Chronicles, well, through, through Kings, actually, is basically in chronological order. And then, and then you get Chronicles, which is covering the same stuff that's in in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, and it starts to all go out the window. I love history. You know that I love history. I think one of the reasons that I love history is it makes sense to me. Because when I was a kid, my parents did what needed to be done for me to have a timeline in my brain. And then so when I learned something new, I already had a, a timeline in my brain and I could pick up that new piece of information and hang it on the appropriate spot in the timeline the Bible doesn't do that for us very well. So where are we? What time period is going on when Haggai is a prophet? Haggai is speaking about 70 years after the exile. So if you remember, God brings forth his people out of uh, Egypt. They rebel because they want an earthly king. They have a heavenly king, but they want an earthly king, and so the kingdom of Israel is established. After the death of Solomon, that kingdom splits north and south. The northern kingdom is eventually overrun by the Assyrians because they have continued to refuse to do the will of God and to worship God. And several generations later, later the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which was primarily the tribe of Judah, was captured by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and the people were carried off to Babylon in exile. Well, what goes around comes around and the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And the Persians had a much different idea about how to handle conquered people than Babylon did. And so the Persians let the people of God return to Judah and return to to Jerusalem. And so that's where we are. That is what is happening. It's 70 years after the beginning of the exile. It's about 16 years after the people have returned to Jerusalem. And that is where we see Haggai 
coming forth. You know, some of this might sound familiar to you because last summer we looked at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that talked about the people of God and what they did after the return from exile. Ezra concerned primarily with the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah concerned primarily with the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And in fact, the prophet Haggai is mentioned twice in Ezra. He's mentioned in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, and mentioned again in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. Ezra 5, 1 says, But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them, and Ezra 6.14 says, So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai and the, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Ido. They finished the building, meaning the building of the temple, according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. So if you were to flip over a page, you were to see that Zechariah is actually the next book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, prophesying at the same time, at the time that Ezra is leading the people to rebuild the temple. As you look at Haggai, you will see that it is only two chapters. In my Bible, in fact, it only takes up two facing pages. It's a very short book, not terribly long. One of the reasons that we're going to be able to get through the whole thing in three weeks. And so this week, we're going to be looking at chapter one. And the next two weeks, we're going to take chapter two and we're going to split it up into two. So this week we are in Haggai chapter 1. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. I want points. I got through those names. The Lord of armies says this. These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested Little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. We all can identify with that feeling. The Lord of Armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it. And I will be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew, and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and on the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on people and animals and on all your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, the high priest, 
Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we study your word this morning, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So, right off the bat, we're told that at a very specific time, the prophet Haggai is raised up to bring a word to the people. I always find it interesting when the biblical text gives us such specific dates. Because specific dates can be fact-checked. If I were to tell you that the Allied invasion of Normandy was that what happened on June the 4th, 1945, you would be able to fact-check me and tell me that that was incorrect. Now, you may not know that off the top of your head, but there were other resources that you could go and look at and see that that wasn't true. When we give specific dates, it allows us to be checked. And Haggai, as he's writing this account of his, of his ministry, of his prophecy, he gives these specific details. The first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet to very specific people. Now that's important. It's important because it tells us that Haggai wants people to know into the future that he was carrying the word and that he could be trusted and it could be checked. It tells us here that he's, he's a prophet. The, the prophets in the, in the Bible are God's early warning system. It's, the prophets come along to let people know that something isn't right. That the people of God have, have strayed from the way of God. The prophets show up when there's a need for a spiritual wake-up call. It's, it's not unlike the warning lights on the dashboard of your car. You, you, you know those warning lights on the dashboard of, of your car? Those, those, those warning lights are there for a reason. When we were on our way home on Friday, we were in a rental car because both of our cars are old enough that I don't trust them to get to Pennsylvania and back, although perhaps I should have. And we were in a rental car and in Fredericksburg, Virginia, after having had to get off the interstate because of traffic, I hear a 
Ka-chunk. And the check engine light comes on. And I lose the top half of the power in the engine. That check engine light was coming on to warn me that something was wrong. Now, there were other things that I could experience that would have led me to believe that something was wrong. I heard a noise and the car was not responding the way that it had been, but that, that bright orange check engine light let me know that the car, which was probably smarter than me, knew that there was something wrong as well. It was an indication that something needed to be addressed. But what happened was we pulled off and we called the rental company's roadside assistance. And the first piece of advice that I got from the person on the other end of that phone call was, well, it's probably nothing, just keep driving the car. I explained to the very nice gentleman who was, by his accent, probably located somewhere on the Indian subcontinent, that that was not going to work for me, that I considered the car undrivable, and that we were going to need a replacement. So after some back and forth, he finally sent me to the closest office for this particular car dealership, and when I got there, they didn't want to do anything about it. Ended up taking us about two hours to get a new vehicle. See, they didn't want to address the problem. They wanted to let somebody else deal with it. Because I had very inconveniently walked through the door at 4.10 and they closed at 5 o'clock. Let someone else deal with it. Now that check engine light had come on. It let us know that there was a problem. But the people who who should have been addressing that problem were ignoring it. The prophets show up to the people of God and they have a giant neon orange check your spiritual engine sign. And over and over and over again in Scripture and today, the people of God ignore the check engine light. Somebody else can deal with it. I've got 50 minutes until I get to go home. Somebody else can deal with it. I'm not a mechanic. I, I just answer the phone. Somebody else can deal with it. I'm I'm just here in church to get fed personally so that I have a slightly better life. Somebody else can deal with it. But the check engine light lets us know that there's a problem. And if I had continued to drive that car, it is... Not a doubt in my mind that I would have gotten maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 60 miles down the road, and then the car would have died, and then it would have been after 5 o'clock, and I would have been stuck on the side of Interstate I-95 in Virginia in 103 degree heat with my seven-week-old baby, and you can guess about how well I would have responded then. 
Haggai is pointing out a serious problem to the people. He is holding up a check engine light. The temple has not been rebuilt. This is a problem. This is an indication that there is a serious underlying issue. It's been 16 years, and the people of God are still saying it's not time yet. Just just keep driving Judah a little while longer. Remember that before Christ, the temple is the, is the location of God's presence among His people. In order for God to be present among His people, the temple has to be there. And so God's people are saying, we don't need God's presence among us, thank you very much. It's not quite time yet. Somebody else can take care of it. You know, at the same time that Haggai is prophesying, we said that Zechariah is prophesying. And if you were to turn over to a page to Zechariah, um, uh, uh, Zechariah, you would see that Zechariah is calling the people to repentance. Zechariah is calling people to repentance. And, and the, not building of the, 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 the act of not building the temple is an indication that something isn't right. That's the, that's the physical manifestation of the spiritual need for repentance. Haggai pointing it out and, and even the temple itself not being rebuilt is that check engine light. You know, repentance is, is needed. And I think sometimes we get, we get twisted on repentance. I think sometimes we think that repentance is simply saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, that I sinned. Or, or maybe just repentance, we think that repentance is simply naming our sin. I did this, this, and this this week, God. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's, brothers and sisters, that is not repentance. Repentance means to turn 180 degrees and begin to move in the opposite direction. Simply stopping what we are doing, simply stopping sin, isn't repentance. In order to repent, we have to start moving, not only stop moving in the wrong direction, but start moving in the right direction. You know, I, I think over the years we, we put a lot of emphasis on stop on the, the, the stopping. We put a lot of emphasis on, I am headed this way. Oh, it's the wrong way. I need to stop. That's good. You need to stop. But we need to put just as much, or in fact, perhaps even more emphasis on the second part of that, which is to begin moving in the right direction. Because if you go 60 miles in the wrong direction and you stop, you are still 60 miles in the wrong direction direction are you not the very very lovely gentleman who gave me a very anglo name in his very indian accent originally wanted me to go to winchester to pick up a new vehicle winchester was 60 miles in the wrong direction 
If I had gone to Winchester and picked up the vehicle, I would have stopped driving the bad vehicle, assuming I could have gotten 60 miles, but I still would have been 60 miles in the wrong direction. We need to to move in the right direction. We need to put as much or more emphasis on pursuing a relationship with God and in growing in Christ-likeness as we do in stopping sin. We need to stop sin. But we also need to pursue God and His design and pursue our discipleship. And then we, we, come, we come here to, to, to verse 4, and I, I just I love it. I absolutely love it. Because Haggai turns to the people and he says, Is it a time for yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai's pointing something out here. He's pointing out that the people have chosen themselves and their comfort over the command and relationship of God. They have not placed God's first. They have placed themselves first and God's second. I was listening to a a talk one time from Tony Evans. And Tony Evans says, there are two things that God can't do. God can't sin. And God can't be second. You know, sometimes we think that it's a time thing, right? I don't have time to do the right thing. I don't have time to pursue my relationship. I'm busy. I've got to get up. I've got to go to work. I've got to get the kids ready. I've got to get out the door. I've got to, all of these things I've got to do. I've got to come home. I've got to grade papers. So terribly sorry that school is starting again. I've got to, I've got to stay late and take care of this thing that somebody is breathing down my neck for. I don't have time. i got to get food on the table for my family. I don't have time. And I bet you that the people there in Jerusalem would have looked at Haggai and said, Haggai, look, the temple's great. We want it built. We don't have time. But they had built their own houses. And not just built their own houses. They hadn't built shelter. They had built paneled houses. They build themselves nice houses. We have time. It's about priorities. I love it. And I use that word ironically and sarcastically. I love it when people that I know who spend six, seven, eight, or more hours a week watching ball games tell me that they don't have the time to pursue relationship with God. And do not get me wrong. I love to watch my ball game. I was very upset. There was a Saints-Ravens preseason game last night, and because I live here, it wasn't on the television. I need you all to become Saints fans, and then we can become part of like the natural network for the Saints, and then it'll show it on Spectrum. Man, I have, I have the MLB total access. I can watch every baseball game. But not at the expense of my relationship with God. 
It's not about time. You've got time. My phone does a thing every week where it counts all of the time I spend looking at screens over the course of the week and sends it to me on Sunday morning. It is an embarrassingly high number. I've got time. You've got time. It's about priorities. You know, are you going to spend time staring at a screen? Maybe it's a phone screen. Maybe it's a TV screen. Maybe it's a computer screen. Or are you going to take 30 to 60 minutes a day chasing a relationship with Christ? Taking 30 to 60 minutes a day to, 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 to read your Bible, to pray, to meditate on God's Word, to come to worship on Sunday morning, to come on Wednesday night when that gets going again. I firmly believe that if every person who called themselves a Christian in this country took 30 to 60 minutes a day to read the Bible and spend time in prayer, we would be living in a radically different country. In a radically different world. We want God in a 911 situation, man. We want to be able to pick up that main line and get right to God. Hey, I've got an emergency. I need you to show up. But we don't want to take the time on a daily basis to check in and keep ourselves aligned and in relationship with Him. Think carefully about your ways, God says. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to be healthy. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. Not the problem we're having in here this morning. The wage earner put his wages into a bag with a hole in it. We're called to repentance, but the only way that we know that if we have returned to God fully is whether or not we're living a fulfilled and satisfied life. Because it doesn't matter how hard we work, if you have not truly repented, if you have not truly returned to God, you are going to find yourself living an unfulfilled and unsatisfied life. If you aren't prioritizing God, all of your hard work won't amount to a hill of beans. In Philippians, Paul reminds us that, that we have to, to seek God. In Philippians 4.11, he says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. And then if you follow the thought on down through verse 13, because through Him who strengthens me. I've learned to be content through Him who strengthens me. You know, God's telling, telling His people, don't just sit around, but, but act. Do something. Yes, 
Grace is free and unearned. But after we have received that free and unearned gift, it requires something of us. It's hard for us to to work our brain around, right? It doesn't require anything of us in order to receive. For there is nothing we can do to be worthy of the reception of that gift. But once we get it, we are required to act. We're called to grow in Christ-likeness, to to grow, to be more like the Master. We're, We're called to be His hands and feet. We're called to seek His pleasure. Yes, we will fail. And yes, we will never, ever, ever get there on our own. But the ability to even try is not a result of our own will, which has fallen and depraved, but it's because of God's grace. We're only able to try because of the grace of God. In seeking God's pleasure and God's design, we find our own fulfillment and happiness. God says to His people, you know, you expected much, but it amounted to little. You wanted something from Me. You wanted Me to give you something, but I needed to remind you that the temple still lies in ruins. I needed to remind you that it wasn't right. I needed to remind you that you need My presence in your life. You needed to reprioritize. You know, we can have bad things happen in our life and we can call it bad luck. We had bad luck coming home on Friday. The traffic around Quantico got awful. I'm assuming it's because Marines don't know how to drive. I'm going to pay for that one later. The traffic was awful around Quantico. And then the car went out. And then we drove through a torrential rainstorm. And then we had traffic again. And by about the time we reached Richmond, and if you know, Frederick, Fredericksburg to Richmond is not very far. I had had enough. It's easy to call the bad things that happen to us bad luck. But let's not disconnect God from our mess. Trials and pain and messiness happens because we live in a fallen world that is far from God. We live in a world that is captive to sin. And these things, brokenness and mess and sin, these things are not of God, but God uses them to make a point to us. I'm still not sure what his point was on Friday. But what I know is that when we return to God, when we root ourselves in God, we find the ability to be at peace when the trials in life come. It was an interesting trip. On Wednesday, we had a 
really bad storm in Harrisburg, and the power went out. Now, for those of us who have grown up in places like Robinson County or Florida, you may not know this, but in other places in the country, they have these things called basements. And it's a hole that exists under your house. But in a lot of basements, if you don't have something called a sump pump, it can fill with water, particularly when you're under a flash flood warning. And guess what? Sump pumps require electricity to work. So when the power goes out, guess what? And when the power surges, when it tries to come back on and fries both of the sump pumps, guess what? It doesn't matter if you can run an electrical cord from your neighbor's generator. They're not going to work. And it was amazing to watch my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, as water was literally rising in the basement, be calm. We, we strove to address the problem. There was an urgency to our actions, but there was no panic. There was no running around like a chicken with our heads cut off. There was no screaming, yelling, cussing. Because those are two people who are spiritually mature, rooted in their relationship with Christ, and who live by the mantra, is it of eternal consequence? Is it of eternal significance? And if it's not, don't worry about it. When we return to God, when we're rooted in God, we have this ability to be at peace even when the water is rising. Now the people, for whatever reason, they listen to Haggai, they head up into the hills, they quickly respond to God's message, and, and right here in verse 12, it's told that the people feared the Lord. That, that fear of the Lord caused them to reprioritize things in their life. And so, in obedience, they, they begin to become the remnant that God's people should be. They begin to become who they were supposed to be from the beginning, and God declares, I am with you. And next week we'll pick up more of the story in chapter 2. You know, like the, the rental car people, sometimes when our spiritual check engine light comes on, we want to ignore it. After all, dealing with it can get messy and time-consuming and even expensive. But it doesn't matter what else we do in our lives and how hard we work at other things. We can, we can balance the tires. We can clean the windows. We can wash, wax, and polish the exterior of the car. But unless we address the problem that has caused the check engine light to come on, it's not going to matter. You can have a great-looking car that doesn't run. You can have a car that you can tow to every car show between here and Daytona. And everyone is going to think it looks great. And then when they ask you to turn it over so that they can hear that engine purr, you can't do it because the car doesn't run. And a car that doesn't run isn't much of a car. Too often in... Our culture this day, these days, nobody wants to deal with the check engine lights that are popping on in our lives. 
Because to deal with the check engine light, to really address it, means that maybe we don't know everything. To, 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 to address the, the spiritual check engine lights that are coming on in our lives and in our culture would interfere with the narrative that we can make our lives, our way, the way that we want them totally separate from God's plan and design. When we do these things, when we end up going down a road that leads to a broken down life on the side of the road, we can think to ourselves, why did God let this happen to me? It's because the light came on and we didn't pull over and address the problem. Sometimes we allow our lives to take priority over God's glory. And when that happens, sometimes he's got to call us back to himself by having the engine go kerchunk and turning on the check engine light. And the proper response, the only proper response when we are confronted by God over our disobedient hearts is repentance. It is the only thing that will check the codes on the computer and address the problem of the check engine light. It's only, only, only when repentance occurs that we can begin to do what it is that God has called us to do. To move forward in that relationship with God through Christ, we have to accept where we have failed it. In order to get down the road, I had to address the check engine light. Brothers and sisters, until we see widespread repentance in the church and in our culture, we're going to end up broke down on the side of the road. Repentance is the only answer for us. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn 309, Lord, I am coming.